Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tack, another in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. I've just returned from a short vacation to a distinctly un-San Francisco-like location. Uh, though wholly lacking in such amenities as fog and sourdough bread, Hawaii somehow manages to provide its own sort of romance. What a gorgeous place. As Jack London, one of our Bay Area native sons, once said, Hawaii is a paradise. I can never cease proclaiming it. Now I understand just what he means. I wasn't thinking about a whole lot on the island, but on the plane headed for home, I suddenly made the San Francisco connection. The return trip took me a little under five hours. It was safe and comfortable, if anything, just a little bit dull. But as I gazed out the window at the endless blue waterscape, I began to long for a certain style of travel long extinct, an elegant mode of air transportation which reached its apogee in the 1940s in San Francisco, the golden age of the flying clippers. Let's set the scene. It's the early 30s. The world is deeply mired in the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt has been elected to the first of his four terms as President of the United States, and in Germany, Adolf Hitler has just bullied his way into power. Prohibition has finally been repealed. The Golden Gate Bridge has not yet been built, but King Kong has managed to climb the Empire State Building. The United States is an isolationist and inward-looking country at this time, and travel to foreign lands is a time- and money-consuming diversion available mainly to the wealthy. A voyage on a steamship to the Republic of Hawaii, which won't become a state for another quarter century, is a matter of weeks, not hours. The singular vision of a man named Juan Tripp gazing out over the limitless Pacific and seeing a not-yet-visible aviation empire helped to change all that. If you've seen Martin Scorsese's recent film, The Aviator, maybe you already recognize this name. The Pan-American Airways president, played with a certain slimy charm by Alec Baldwin, appears as the megomaniacal nemesis of Howard Hughes. Maybe you remember his beautiful office at the top of the Chrysler Building in New York. Tripp had been fascinated with aviation since his university days when he left Yale to become a Navy bomber pilot and led to his singular vision to link the world with aircraft. His family had built their fortune in the 19th century on tall-masted clipper ships sailing between the west coast of the United States and China, so perhaps it was natural that he'd look to the Pacific as a key part of this vision. He spent hours at the New York Public Library studying old shipping maps and noticed that Hawaii, Guam, and Manila formed a sort of line of lily pads towards Asia, with Midway and Wake Islands forming further links in the chain. He hired the world-famous aviator Charles Lindbergh as a consultant and, sharing a belief in the power of aviation to connect the globe, flew over the Pacific together, mapping out potential routes. In 1934, he went public with the announcement, Pan Am is going to conquer the Pacific. This was a shocking statement. At this time, it was simply not possible. And it was emblematic of Tripp's hubris that no commercial aircraft yet existed which could make these terrifically long inter-island flights, and even if one had existed, there was nowhere for it to land. He drew inspiration from his 19th century nautical forefathers and decided to have massive seaplanes constructed to his specifications, the largest aircraft ever built in the United States, and named them after those tall, square-rigged ships of yesteryear. They were to be known as the Clippers. 
Pan Am already owned a few large seaplanes designed by the Russian emigre Igor Sikorsky, but it was the arrival of the three custom-designed transoceanic clippers from the Martin Company, named the Hawaii, Philippine, and China clippers, that fulfilled his dream and linked east with west in a way that would forever shrink the size of the globe. It's our good fortune that this order took place at a particularly stylish time in the history of industrial design, a time when, to reveal my personal bias, everything was beautiful. Trains, buses, even toasters and clocks were designed in a sexy and streamlined style. But it wasn't just decorative style which made these ships beautiful. Just like the great sailing vessels from which they took their name, and following the maxim of the Bauhaus that form must follow function, they distill the essence of their natural working environment. These ships took their elegant shapes from the elements in which they sailed, the wind and the water. And because of that, they're gorgeous. And their very first Trans-Pacific flight took wing from San Francisco Bay. Seems natural somehow, appropriate, that San Francisco, with its busy port and long-standing links of commerce and culture to the Orient, would become the launching point to this new and intimate connection with the East. Seems a little weird to refer to it as the East when Clippers traveled west to get there, but I digress. Tripp had swung a deal with Roosevelt's administration that gave Pan Am a monopoly on Trans-Pacific mail service, if they could pull it off. And on November 22, 1935, that inaugural mail flight was cheered into the air by a crowd of 150,000 San Franciscans. It flew the over 8,000 miles to Manila in less than 60 hours, and passenger service to the Philippines and Hong Kong began less than a year later. Which brings me to my favorite part of this story, the flight itself. I don't know if it's possible to imagine today how glamorous these titanic flying boats actually appeared to an economically depressed nation. They quickly became a powerful symbol of glamour and luxury, of excitement, adventure, and after a few years an even larger and more spectacular clipper was produced by the Boeing Company, a commercial ship so large that it wouldn't be surpassed until the advent of the modern jet-powered 747. These beautifully streamlined flying boats appeared in magazine articles, newsreels, and posters, celebrities in their own right. Hollywood even produced a film about them called The China Clipper, starring Humphrey Bogart. Speaking of newsreels, though, I actually found a couple of streaming videos online, which I'll link to through sparkletack.com. There are some gorgeous photos of the planes flying over San Francisco, among other places, and also some beautiful travel posters from the period on the site definitely worth your time to pay it a visit. The most popular destination by far, whether in reality or just in the dreams of an adventure-starved public, were the newly conquered, <clears throat> the newly accessible and exotically beautiful islands of Hawaii. The question is, what was that voyage like? This was without question the ultimate way to travel to paradise. Before I begin to describe it though, you may want to pause and mix yourself a clipper cocktail a drink created especially for passengers on these flying palaces. Simply combine one and a half ounces of light or gold rum, a half ounce of vermouth, half teaspoon of grenadine, pour over cracked ice into a chilled cocktail glass and enjoy. As you're sipping your imaginary drink, you might also want to imagine yourself as an extremely wealthy person. Tripp's vision would eventually expand to include a democratization of air travel, but this wouldn't come to pass until after the war. The golden age of travel required a certain amount of 
gold in one's pockets. A round-trip fare to Honolulu in the early 40s would have set you back something in the neighborhood of $10,000 in modern currency. Okay, let's take a trip. I'm standing on Treasure Island, the artificial landmass constructed in the middle of San Francisco Bay in 1936 for the exposition celebrating the completion of the Golden Gate in Bay Bridges. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, let's say it's 1939, and a stiff breeze is flowing in from the mouth of the bay. I can see both brand new bridges over the cool blue water and the colorful gaiety of the International Exposition further along the island. Alcatraz and the San Francisco Ferry Building loom in the distance. Seagulls wheel overhead as my heart swells with civic pride. I've already had myself and my luggage weighed, as required, and had a refreshing beverage in the first-class waiting room filled with celebrities and reporters. Two bells have just rung, and I'm walking, along with the rest of the relentlessly stylish crowd. Hey, isn't that Anime Wong over there? From the Art Deco-style clipper terminal towards the Port of the Trade Winds, where a gangplank leads to one of the moored clipper's pontoons, and then down into the hatchway. That deco terminal, by the way, is the only remnant of this era left on Treasure Island, and you can still see it from San Francisco. More about that in subsequent shows, I promise. I'm greeted by a pair of stewardesses, smartly dressed in black and white, who were probably also registered nurses, a requirement of the early days of air travel. They smile and direct me towards my compartment. The four sets of 14-foot propeller blades are already spinning, and the roar of the enormous engines adds to the sense of excitement in the air. As I ascend the stairs and enter the inner cabin, the noise decreases and almost vanishes due to the heavily padded and insulated outer walls. There are none of the cramped rows of sardine-like seating that one sees in modern airliners here. People of this era expected the roomy luxury of passenger trains, which the clippers match in spades. The planes are divided into compartments, much like trains, including a kitchen, a main lounge, bathrooms, and a spacious deluxe suite towards the tail section. As I walk through, I notice that each of the compartments is furnished with a row of plush sofa-like seats and two couches. The compartments alternate between rich turquoise and sumptuously scarlet-colored decor, and the transition from one to the other is marked by a step as each room accommodates the shape of the airplane's fuselage. Once I'm safely tucked into my seat, the announcement for takeoff is heard. The giant craft with its nearly 50-foot wingspan cuts proudly through the choppy waters of the bay, picks up speed, and within moments has performed the majestic transformation from boat to aircraft and is winging its way over the Golden Gate towards the islands. Something to remember about these flights is that radar existed in a very primitive form at this time, absolutely useless for navigation. The navigator plotted his course by looking out through a clear dome in the roof and taking star sightings with a sextant. If the clouds were too heavy to see the heavens, they had to fly by dead reckoning, just like the sailors of old, like Captain Cook, Francis Drake, or Magellan. After we reach the 8,000-foot cruising altitude, I get up and begin to explore the plane. The heavily upholstered lounge is softly lit and beginning to fill up with my well-dressed fellow passengers, the men all in hats, wearing fine suits or sport coats, and the women luxuriating in high-fashion tailored suits or beautifully made silk dresses and exotic furs. The thought of wearing something so déclassé as a pair of jeans, much less shorts and flip-flops, seems so outrageous that I push it from my mind with horror. 
A steward announces that high tea is being served in the lounge, to be followed by cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. I'm transfixed by the view from the large windows that run the length of the plane and decide to wait for dinner. There are two to three dinner seatings per flight, depending on the number of passengers, and much like a cruise ship, the captain hosts at least one of them. The dining salon is graced with linen-covered tables of solid black walnut, fine china, crystal goblets, and sterling silver tableware. There are flowers at every table, and the five-course meal is hot and four-star quality, served by a waiter in a starched white waistcoat. I sip my champagne and wonder if I ought to do a little reading after dinner or play cards with some of the other passengers. The excitement of the journey and new experiences has worn me out, so I ring for the stewardess to make up my sleeping berth. The couches become sleeping compartments even larger and more comfortable than on Pullman trains of the time, and curtains can be drawn for privacy. I drift off to sleep, peacefully hurtling through the air at 180 miles per hour towards paradise. At daybreak, I'm gently awakened by a steward. The women on the flight head for the spacious changing room in robes and slippers to dress and powder their noses, and I, after a quick shave in the men's washroom and a resetting of my pocket watch, head for the lounge for coffee, juice, and rolls. The island of Oahu, with its signature volcanic mountain of Diamond Head, appears off to starboard, and within a few minutes we've splashed down into Pearl Harbor. After making my way through the ranks of reporters and bowing my head along with all the other passengers to accept my brightly colored floral lay of welcome, I head through manicured gardens to the Pan Am Inn for a full breakfast on the veranda with a view of the harbor and of the stately vessel that brought me here. Also, klingt das nicht schön? I don't know what I'm getting all worked up over, though. I mean, there's no way in hell I'd be able to afford something like that, simple peasant that I am. Pure fantasy, then and now. Still, it's somehow nice to know that such luxuries once existed, and as long as I'm dreaming, I might as well aim high. Like most good things, it was not to last. The world had gone to war, and on December 7, 1941, the United States was dragged into the conflict by the attack on Pearl Harbor. All of Pan Am's operations in the Pacific were terminated, and the Clippers were drafted into service to ferry materials and personnel. Not many other aircraft of the day could meet the demands of wartime distance and carrying capacity, and they served the country well during wartime. None of the three original Martin Clippers survived the war years. The original China Clipper was finally returned to Pan Am in 1943 and once again began flying passengers and mail from Miami to South America and the Belgian Congo. In 1945, after having flown almost three million miles in its ten years of service, the China Clipper crashed while attempting to land at the port of Spain, Trinidad. After the war ended, worldwide expansion of airports with new and improved concrete runways, the development of more powerful engines, and modern avionics navigational gear led to the larger Clipper fleet's ultimate demise. By the 50s, all of these magnificent birds had vanished, scrapped, crashed, or cannibalized for parts. But the world had changed too, and the golden age of travel, limited as it was to the upper classes, had finally come to an end. Juan Tripp's new vision of a smaller world more accessible to the general public was beginning to come true. The jet age had begun, and international travel was rendered quicker, safer, and in my opinion, infinitely more dull. Thanks to Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com for the track Modern Jazz Samba, played in the background during my description of the flight over the Pacific. 
I also owe a debt to a website called flyingclippers.com for some of this material, though it's a, a matter of public record and there's all kinds of stuff on the internet um, about these ships. This particular site is a wonderful resource and I highly recommend a visit. I'll, I'll put a link on sparkletack.com. To the trivia question, congratulations once again to Monika in Germany for correctly identifying the dogs associated with Emperor Norton as Bummer and Lazarus. Schon wieder gut gemacht, Monika. They were as beloved as the monarch, as it turns out, and when they died, were stuffed and put on display in their favorite saloon for the whole city to, uh, to enjoy. Okay. This week's question. This is going to be a little tougher. This is a, a flying geek question, so good luck. I mentioned that the very first flight from uh, San Francisco to Manila took off from San Francisco Bay. It did not take off from Treasure Island, however. Can someone tell me from where it did take off? Whether you know the answer or not, please tune in again next week for another glance back towards San Francisco's history. Or maybe something from today. I'm actually, once again, not sure what the heck I'm going to do the show about. We'll see. I'm available at sparkletack at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. Or visit, as always, sparkletack.com for photos, past shows, and miscellaneous other good stuff. Till next time. <laughs>